for cultivating progress across the South, for working to unconditionally improve the lives of all, and for the bold underwriting of every Gravy podcast, SFA thanks our visionary Louisville, Kentucky friends, Pam and Brooke Smith. How does an immigrant family negotiate the South? What's it like for the children of immigrants to balance fidelity to cultural traditions, language, and foodways with the need and want to adapt to a new home? What's lost? What's learned? And for those children, what do their futures look like? You're listening to Gravy. 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 Gravy! Today, Paul Reyes, an American son of immigrants, confronts the reality that he's losing his Spanish language skills and wonders about who he is and who his young children will be. I confess a cultural insecurity, namely that as a Hispanic man in America, I've always navigated the conversation about Latino identity with unsure footing, a vulnerability tied to the language of Spanish itself. I am an American son of Hispanic immigrants, a Colombian mother, a Cuban father, a combination that leads many Latinos to say, que mezcla tan rara. But even in saying that phrase, it's clear that neither tongue works all that comfortably for me. I possess neither the crisp musicality de los colombianos or the furry, consonantless tumbling de lo cubano. My Spanish is passable, sure, but it's also glaringly self-conscious. My Spanish is a first language that began to fade during a boyhood in the South, despite my parents' best efforts to preserve it. The fact that it evolved from a first language to a second one for lack of practice, for lack of commitment, evokes a mash of complicated feelings shared by many Americans who belong to a family's transitional generation, who must navigate where they fit between cultures. Our drifting is distinct from code switching, the cultural and linguistic acrobatics that allow us to play between identities, to improvise. Rather, it begins as code switching, but slowly, over time, the tools you need to switch back are harder to find. The critical question for me is whether I can get my Spanish back, and in doing so, revive a stifled heritage. Really, the question is, what is Latino enough? Now in my 40s, I've slipped pretty far into the fog of who I'm supposed to be as a Latino in America, a man whose Spanish has faded, a father who fears he may have missed the chance to ingrain his own son with the language naturally, and who tries to make up for it by wedging it into conversations now and then, only to watch the boy roll his eyes and sigh because a six-year-old knows what's what and can tell the difference between discovering something and having to learn it. A man shy enough about his Spanish that he doesn't wander too far from the simplicity of ordering huevos con chorizo or tacos al pastor at the Mexican restaurant, and who kind of clams up when the waiter throws some small talk at him. But also a man who, despite all this, gets kind of choked up when he listens to Chavela Vargas or Eliades Ochoa. So the question of what kind of Hispanic I am has been an open one for years with language at the center of the mystery. And perhaps that question and that mystery would have festered for another 40 years or so were it not amplified and agitated by a death in the family, that of my grandmother, my mother's mother, Elda Picón Blanco Ordóñez, a woman who, for better and worse, was like a gravitational force for the family, whose quirks and complaints and ailments were a subplot to any conversation the rest of us were having, a woman who was as acerbic as she was doting, as much a smartass as she was a romantic, a woman who was blunt, a working-class matriarch who adored her daughter's only child, a son named Paul, whom she nicknamed Pollo, not unlike her favorite part of the bird, the white meat. But most of all, a woman who, in her indifference to the English language, 
was my bulwark against the old country's culture fading out, and whose death now raises the threat of forgetting, since the voice that set the terms has been silenced. See her there at the kitchen table. It could be 1976, or 1984, or sometime in the 90s. Elda with a deck of cards for solitaire, arranged in stalactite lines across a doily she crocheted herself. Some doilies she gave away as gifts. Others were so damn good she framed them. She was serious with the crochet business, serious about sewing, a talent she picked up as a seamstress in a factory in Philadelphia, where she landed from Colombia in 1965, in which she turned into her own means of making a living after my grandparents followed us to St. Petersburg, Florida in 1973, the city she called home ever since. Sewing and cooking were the two skills she took most seriously, spending countless hours in two rooms. The sunroom, where she sat at a FOF 130 sewing machine, an industrial unit with a leather fan belt and a foot pedal. The whole thing as loud as a jackhammer when she pressed down. Here's where she sewed dresses for a little extra cash and talked back to the telenovelas in the afternoons, unleashing a torrent with each push of her foot. Her other headquarters, of course, was the kitchen, a modest little corner of the house but the first room you pass through when you entered from the carport. You walk through a short hallway first, a junk room where the washer and dryer were always running, before opening the kitchen door, frail like a stage prop that switched open. As welcoming as that kitchen was, it was also an armory of unexpected weapons. The skillet was one, which Elda always kept on the stovetop, not only because she used it constantly, but so that she knew where to find it in case of a break-in, the potato rug she used for searing steaks was a backup too, in case she needed to keep a little distance from her attacker. That house in St. Petersburg is where Elda lay the foundation of her influence, during weekend visits and sleepovers. It's where the cousins reunited. At that house, through the rituals of meals at the doily-draped kitchen table, or through her storytelling interrupted by the faf, she held court and spoiled us. And she fed us plenty. Here is where I devoured her cooking, empanadas con guiso, a mix of sautéed beef and rice and hard-boiled egg, and arepa con queso, and caldo con huevo, ají, carne asada. Her little kitchen was a nook of the sublime, and I was lucky enough that she didn't just feed me, but taught me how to make these dishes, so that I learned as best I could how to brown the meat, drain the grease, rub just the right amount of water on the tapas, knead them out, seal the empanada with the tines of a fork, add just enough cilantro to the apple cider vinegar so the ahi found its balance. And of course, she knew that in performing these rituals, she was giving life to language, shaping a boy's character through the discipline and delights of cooking. To understand Elda's influence, it's important to explain my family's particular American experience. My parents met in Philadelphia in 1969, their families taking radically different paths to that moment, but both arriving piecemeal with their respective dramas. The Picon family's move from Colombia began with my uncle, Jorge, which is to say that it began with Elvis Presley. Discovering Elvis was a transformative experience for him, a summons to escape the increasing suffocation he felt in Colombia. He was restless and wanted out, and so he aimed for the place that spawned such a thing as Elvis. He convinced Elda's sister, who already lived in Philadelphia, to sponsor him, so he could finish high school in the States. Fed up with my grandfather's failing business, fed up with my grandfather, fed up with Colombia, Elda used the occasion of her birthday and the idea of visiting Jorge in Philadelphia as a birthday present as a way to get out too. 
so that by May 1965 she was reunited with her son in Philly, and a few months later, a permanent resident, offered my grandfather an ultimatum. If you want the family to stay together, it's going to happen in America. My grandfather was a reluctant immigrant, settling what debts he could, pulling out his savings, and dragging his three remaining children, including my mother, to join Jorge and Elda in Philly. The timing of his arrival portended a dislocation he'd feel for the rest of his life here, for it was on Halloween that they arrived, discombobulated and exhausted, only to have to endure the weird little mockery of these kids knocking at the door for hours after dark, dressed as vampires and who knows what, yelling, tiki tik After a while, he just refused to answer the door. I know now, having pieced his story together, that he was always uncomfortable in America, always tepid about the American dream. He represents, I think, the immigrants who deserve their own literary epic, the tale of the lukewarm pilgrim for whom America was more meh than a shining city on a hill. The immigrant who returns home, for that is exactly what he did after 50 years of marriage, with great-grandchildren multiplying before him. He got an octogenarian wild hair and returned to Colombia once and for all to sow whatever arthritic oats he had left and to enjoy, as my mother would mockingly refer to it in her bitterness over this last move, la gloria de la patria. My father arrived in 1962, at 15, with his nine-year-old brother in tow, boys swept up in a brain-drain exodus of children known as Operation Pedro Pan, a program organized by the Catholic Welfare Bureau to extract Cuban children from Fidel Castro's communism. With that, they were dropped into the narrative of exile. His parents were lucky enough to get out four years later, and the Reyes family was finally reunited through the randomness that distinguishes so much of the immigrant experience in Stanford, Connecticut, of all places. Growing up and well into my 20s, I was skeptical of the Cuban exiles' habit of mythologizing their suffering. Something about it seemed myopic in light of so many other immigrant struggles and tribulations, the varieties of survival and thriving. But empathy was easier to come by as my father, over the course of decades, slowly opened up about what he and his brother had been through. Empathy came a little quicker when you imagine two boys being told that their trip to Miami was a vacation to visit family friends, who dressed up in suits for the flight, and who upon landing there were greeted by a priest informing them that the vacation would be longer than expected. That in fact no one could say for sure how long the boys would be staying. At which point they were delivered to the Jesuits, who raised them among thousands of other kids in an army barracks on the wooded edges of a weird city called Opalaca, in a camp they called Matacumbe, where they spent the rest of childhood. It was inevitable that my father's struggle with exile would affect the push and pull I felt with my own heritage. He spent considerable energy keeping his back turned on Cuba, not talking very much about it, or if he did, talking about it obliquely, dancing around the deeper pain of his extraction as a child. It took him 40 years to look directly at it. And until then, he kept moving forward as an American, insistent, overachieving, as if success were a kind of vengeance for the way in which he'd arrived. In any case, there in Stanford, the family together again, my father found his father a job, welding plates at a die-cast factory. It was, as Dad described it, shit work. And it pained him to watch his father trudge off at midnight for the graveyard shift, lunchbox dangling in his hand, uncomplaining as always. They knew of cousins in Philadelphia, a cluster of Cubans there. Why not give it a shot? The son told his father, go visit. If you like it, we'll move. And his father liked it, so they did. In Philly, the Picons and Reyeses had friends in common, a Cuban couple named Lino y Blanca. 
when they realized that my father had the same birthday as Jorge, and that Jorge had a little sister who was old enough to date, well, what was everybody waiting for? Let the courtship begin, though let it abide by the rules of the old man. When my father asked permission to take my mother on a picnic, my grandfather said no. But after enough time together, my grandfather grew to like him and granted him permission to visit the house on Friday evenings from seven to nine. My parents would sit in the living room while my grandfather observed them from an adjacent room, pretending to watch television but using a mirror that had been strategically placed to keep his eye on them the whole time. My parents would catch him staring at them in reflection or glancing back and forth between the mirror and television. And at nine on the nose, a noise, a clearing of the throat. Ya es hora de que se vaya, Jose Miguel. And that was that. Though they lived just four blocks away, they were left to these weekly visits and volumes of letters in between. Philadelphia, St. Petersburg, Atlanta. Eventually, working days and studying nights, my father got a degree in architectural engineering, then a job in the field, and his career evolved from designing buildings to building buildings, building restaurants specifically, which involved less finesse and more volume, less time at home and more on the road. And as a workaholic immigrant with something to prove, the grind suited him. The Atlanta phase was especially demanding. For here, he had found work with a tragically named but quickly expanding chain of diners called Sambos, the racist shorthand lost on him, befuddled by the crowds picketing a site in Trenton or Boston. Though it began as a family operation, by the time my father joined the company in 1977, Sambos had national ambitions. When the two forces met, my father's fear of failure and the company's expansionist visions quickly led him to being named Director of Development for any Sambos going up east of the Mississippi. And here is where the culture started to slip. In St. Pete, we had been an enclave of our own, a family of three generations and ten members strong. With opportunities in other cities, we spread out. And to the extent that my father was insistent about us speaking Spanish at home, he was never home long enough to enforce it. And he knew as much and thus came up with the idea of having me spend summers with Elda, so that I could be immersed in the language. Coming up, what happens when the Reyes family leaves the big city and moves to a deeper, more rural south? Paul talks code switching when we return. Simmons Catfish is a family-owned business that calls the Mississippi Delta home. The company is committed to quality catfish and, most importantly, to its employees. My name is Maria Esparza and I've been here 20 years at Simmons. I was born in Mexico, but I was raised in West Laco, Texas. When I was 19, they brought us over here to Simmons on a working contract, and I haven't went nowhere since then. Maria works as a strip table supervisor, cutting fish at the Simmons Processing Plant in Yazoo City, the same Delta town that gave us author Willie Morris. The Simmons Company recently honored her 20 years of service. Simmons marked her anniversary with a gift of a living room set, a dining room set, and more. She recalls the celebration fondly. Our people from the plant, they gave me some presents. I mean, it just felt good. They all got up, applause. It's just feeling good that you do for them and they do for you and they love you. I mean, like I said, this is family right here. Wouldn't go nowhere. You ain't gonna find another job like this. The next time you crave catfish, baked, fried, or in a stew, 
Luke for Simmons Farm Raised Catfish, a driver of the Delta economy, an employer with integrity, the home of Willie Morris and Maria Esparza. A list of vendors is online at SimmonsCatfish.com. For their commitment to quality catfish, their belief in their employees, and their support of this podcast, we thank them. We lived four years in Atlanta, then moved to Rocky Mountain, North Carolina, a town of roughly 40,000. A shock to my mother, who had no say in the matter and was forced to leave a job she loved, forced to abandon the cosmopolitan flavors of a city in which she had formed an enthusiastic sense of self. Atlanta was a metropolis, Rocky Mount a Mayberry. And it was in Rocky Mount that the code switch started to stick, where the rituals of assimilation took over, where we did our best to blend in among white southern neighbors. In that town, the three of us spoke Spanish less and less. We could find no Latino friends. We practiced our Spanish on the phone with family or on holiday reunions. My father persisted in his campaign to make Spanish a household rule, but the discipline just wasn't there. Because in a small southern town like that, you do your best to fit in. And for the most part, we did. We blended in. We got along. Our fair complexions helped. My father's job working for Body Knoll Enterprises, in charge of building as many hardies as the South would hold at the dawn of the phenomenon known as the breakfast biscuit, that helped too. In fact, the lifestyle his job provided seemed to do a lot of the work for us. We lived in the right neighborhood, we worked for the right people, I went to the right school. But even then, all those things in place, we could be on the receiving end of racism. We were fair game. I was 10 when I realized it an epiphany delivered through a friend's teasing, the son of someone who worked with my father. I wasn't even the target, but my father, the foreigner, was. I forget what prompted the teasing, but I'll never forget the moment, the slur, and the smile with which he said it. Spick. Over and over again, because he could see the pain that it caused. Easing out the S, snapping the C like a rubber band against the skin. That last consonant like a flick between the eyes. Even more complicated was the fact that this cruelty was delivered not with bile, but in jest, as teasing, as jokes, as a ribbing. My father tells his own version of this story. He was having breakfast at a relatively fancy spot where families went for brunch after mass, where the business class expensed long lunches. He was at the table with some colleagues and his boss, a man who genuinely liked him, who had groomed him, and on that day pointed to a coffee cup and said, Jose, how do you get 12 Cubans to fit inside that little cup? My father shrugged. You tell them it floats. And the table laughed. My father laughed, complicit in the humiliation. And what was he to do? And who am I, even as an adult, to judge him? For at the very least, I'm guilty of my own complicity with being the target of racism when in high school, back in St. Petersburg in the late 80s, I failed to strike back when my friends slapped the same old epithet on me as a nickname. Spick. And they were loud when they said it, calling to me from across the courtyard. No faculty stepped up, no administrators, not even the Spanish teacher. And the strangest part of it was that they knew better than to say such a thing to our Chilean classmate, who was darker, more obviously Hispanic, even though I knew he heard it. I, on the other hand, I was safe, white enough to pass, white enough for them to think it didn't really count. All of which is to say, that in thinking about the ways in which we identify ourselves, it seems likely that we are as much defined by our crucibles as our rituals. 
And yet, is that Latino enough? Being white enough to pass made a lot of things easy in the South. But the cost of resting in that advantage revealed itself as I got older, in the shame I felt at being an outsider among family who could riff freely in the family's first language, who get the joke on the first telling, who can double down on idioms that I've never heard. To miss out on all this feels like an indictment of my own laziness, because I've always recognized a duty in preserving my heritage. One that I may have been shirking, sure, but a duty nonetheless. And if that wasn't complicated enough, this sense of duty has somehow been coupled with a false confidence in being Hispanic, exploiting it when it suited me. In my 20s and 30s, I enjoyed the exoticism of being Cuban and the power of revealing it, fully aware that being Cuban came with a certain cultural cachet because of how Americans romanticized an island that was forbidden to them. The idea of being secretly or discreetly Hispanic raises a deeper concern, which is that I've been able to enjoy the privilege of not having assumptions made about me, of not being judged by the color of my skin. My family may have suffered slights, sure, but for the most part, we had the luxury and freedom to make a first impression based on character or personality or skill set. First impressions that many of my Hispanic brothers and sisters aren't afforded, and which are certainly denied to my American neighbors of any race that isn't white. By the time we returned to Elda in St. Pete in 1984, living just a few miles away, I was more or less comfortable with my betweenness, with the clumsy code switching I'd do between the school week and the weekends when I would visit with her. My teenage Spanish was wobbly, and half our conversations at the time involved her tisking at me or repeating what I'd said, but with the verbs tidied up and tucking the articles and adverbs where they belonged. Elda did her best to impart Colombian Spanish, which she and all Colombians believed to be superior. In fact, she mocked every other Spanish but Colombian. She was classist when it came to articulation, and for her, the Colombians were regal speakers without affectation. But there was one moment, just a moment, when my Spanish finally pleased her, when she didn't just nod that I'd passed, but actually praised me. We were on vacation in Colombia. I was 15, the first time I'd been back since a baby when my mother had taken me on a kind of showcase tour among family, her grandparents and cousins, and an extended circuit of two dozen aunts and uncles. This time around, it was just me and Ella, my cousin Jeff, and his father Arnold. We'd been staying with my great-grandmother at her home in Bucaramanga for a couple of weeks already and we had hired a driver to take us to see a fortress just outside the city, a spot with some historical Catholic gravitas that Elda insisted on visiting. We puttered up a mountain in a tiny four-door Toyota, found the fortress, took the tour, slouched through its tunnels and admired the view of the valley from the ramparts. We then made our way through the heat back to the car. I flopped into the front seat, lowered the window and rested my arm on the door, fingers on the roof, but with my thumb resting between the frame and the open rear door. Elda got in behind me, and with a dark, electric suddenness, I heard the door shut, the hinge click tight, and felt a current of pain shoot from my hand to my toes. No more than a second passed, in slow motion, and I screamed, Hijo de puta, abre la puerta! Elda opened the door. I looked at my thumb, just turning black, ballooning. The driver inhaled when he saw it. When I turned to look at Elda, I found her laughing. A belly laugh, a breathless laugh, waving away tears laughing. The strangeness of it, the shock and the hurt and the insult replaced the pain for just a moment and I asked her, why are you laughing? Mi vida, she said. Su español salió perfecto. Even the driver was impressed. El gringo habla bien. Elda did not die peacefully. 
but at the mercy of brain cancer, an excruciating diminishment. By the time we discovered it, she had already moved into a nursing home run by nuns in Plano, Texas, where my mother had moved a while back. Elda adored the nuns, was an adopted member of the staff before she grew too weak to help. I was a father by then, busy enough that our relationship was mostly restricted to phone calls and, more often, the voicemails she left scolding me for not calling her back quickly enough. Busy, stretched thin, on the road, overwhelmed. Hospice. And that's when you drop everything and go. I visited in July and helped choose her last room with a view of a small garden, just something green to soothe her if she happened to be gazing out the window, whether conscious of it or not. She lived until September in that room. The way my mother tells it, in Elda's last days, her only moments of clarity were when she asked for me. Mom would have to assure her that I was off somewhere, but nearby, mingling with the nuns maybe, and that I'd be back soon. But I was gone by then, phoning in for updates. And one morning, shocked at how lucid Elda was, asking to speak with me once again, my mother called. I was in the car, and whether it was sunrise or sunset outside, I couldn't tell you, only that the sun was low. And as we spoke, she wept, but I could hear that the sluggishness of the drugs was gone, that she was present, and we gushed affections to each other. It was the clearest Spanish I'd spoken since that day I howled in Colombia, pure and unaffected, unselfconscious, just present, just as she was, all hers. After the call was over, I couldn't even remember what I'd said, only that it was a slightly different person who had said it. In considering where I fall between cultures, how I've been shaped by the perception of my race, it's impossible not to engage the larger confrontation over race in America. It would be irresponsible, in fact, to consider these questions as they pertain to me and ignore the deeper pain and insult my Hispanic brothers and sisters, and by extension, all my fellow citizens of color have endured in a culture wherein their alienation and oppression are taken for granted. I am the whitest Latino I know, which may seem like a superficial distinction, but it's also true, by virtue of who we are, by virtue of where we live, that color carries weight. We are reminded of this daily through the larger self-interrogation on race in America. Paying attention to it isn't easy. The interrogation is painful, but it is critical. As an editor of literature and journalism, it's my day job. It's my professional purpose. I'm certainly lucky that a conflicted sense of self led to a career in engaging these questions about race and the evolution of the American character, that the mission of my work is, in part, to foster voices in need of a platform. And who am I among them? What have I given back based on what I've been able to reap as a Hispanic? Asking this question is, in a way, an invitation to others to ask similar questions of themselves. And by asking these questions, we initiate the act of listening, which is itself an act of humility. And if I'm asking what is Latino enough, I'm a breath away from asking what is Asian enough? What is African American enough? What is enough of any distinction in race or ethnicity or culture in a country of immigrants? If I'm asking what is Latino enough, I'm a breath away from asking what is American enough? When I ask a more fundamental question, who am I? I think of Elda. And when I think of her, I think of what she made, what she made for me, and what she made of me. I like to think that as I age and the circle of consciousness closes in, gets tighter, and the more frivolous memories are ejected so that the mind carries just what it needs, 
I like to think that among the primary stuff that remains are the memories of Elda's flavors, her cadence, those phrases in the purest Spanish I know, the powerful stuff embedded early. And I wouldn't be surprised if the empanada, singular as hers were, never to be replicated, was my rosebud, the word I whisper in the last scene that has the nurses scratching their heads. Charles Foster Keynes was a bobsled tossed into the fire. Mine, on the other hand, is a greasy hot pocket stuffed with beef and rice and a hard-boiled egg. We have to take a bite first to make room for the ají and let it drip down inside just to give it a little kick. Is that Latino enough? It's good enough for me. Paul Reyes, editor of the Virginia Quarterly Review, brought us this episode. He originally presented these ideas at our 2017 Fall Symposium in Oxford when SFA took a close look at El Sur Latino. Thomas Walsh produced this episode. Gravy's theme music is by Wendell Patrick and our donor music is by Jazar. Our intern is Monique Laborde. Managing editor for Gravy and all other SFA content is Sarah Camp Milam. To learn about the music used in this episode and see photos of Paul and his family, visit our website, southernfoodways.org. While there, you can click the donate button and make a tax-deductible contribution to fund our documentary work. Your financial gifts make SFA oral histories, films, and this podcast possible. Thank you for your support. Thank you for your support.